This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 5th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Ken Catania on what exactly happens when an electric eel shocks its prey. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on a finding that may push back abstract art by quite a few millennia. Homo erectus, an early hominin that lived sometime between 1.9 million years ago and 140,000 years ago, was first discovered in 1890 on the island of Java in Indonesia. The same group of archaeologists also collected mollusk shells from this same area of the island, which appear now to have engravings on them. Dave, who figured out these engravings might be important and possibly linked to Homo erectus? Well, sir, in 2007, an archaeology student named Stephen Monroe began taking a closer look at these shells, and he saw the engravings, and as he says in the story, he nearly fell out of his chair. And that's because, you know, as you hinted, that we think about things like our species being able to do things like have symbolic thinking and create art. That really only stretches back a few tens of thousands of years. Perhaps the oldest may be... 100,000 years old where we see some sort of engravings made by our species. So to have engravings that may be as old as 500,000 years old, which is what these shells have been dated to, and you can actually see a picture on the site of what these engravings look like, these sort of these zigzag patterns, would be very revolutionary because it would indicate that 
that well before modern humans came around, some of our ancestors may have had some of the same thought processes that we did. Right. This idea that a very, very ancient hominin race made these carvings and that they are actual abstract expressions is pretty challenging to prove. Let's walk through some of the objections one by one that people have had to this. First, how did they figure out that ancient hominins actually gathered these shells and interacted with them? Well, sir, one of the pieces of evidence is that about a third of the shells the team looked at had holes right near where there's a muscle that the mollusk would have used to keep the shell closed. And through a bit of a hands-on experimentation, the researchers found that they could actually recreate these holes using shark teeth, which would have essentially been available to the hominids at the time. And the thought was that maybe they created these holes when they were opening the shells so they could eat them. So that was some indication that humans had had some sort of interaction with these shells. And what about the engraving that's on the surface? Is there any way it could have happened through natural processes? Well, what the researchers did, they actually had a team member do some very detailed microscopy of these engravings to figure out, you know, is this a natural pattern? Is it an unnatural pattern, i.e. a man-made or a hominid-made pattern? And what they found is that this was a pattern that had been etched in one session by one person using a sharp tool. And then they also had to determine whether or not the engraving was as old as the activity, right? Right. Well, there was some thought that maybe this is a hoax. The team that discovered this, these shells was a team that found them in, in the 1890s. And one critic had pointed out, well, maybe these team members got bored. One of them started, in his spare time, started making some engravings on his shell. And now we think these engravings were made hundreds of thousands of years ago. But what the researchers found is that if the engravings had been made recently, the pattern would be very sharp. But instead of seeing a very smooth pattern, a pattern that seems to have been worn down over the years, and that's the type of pattern you would see if something had been buried for thousands of years. Okay, last objection. If an ancient hominin did make these carvings, and they did make these zigzag carvings in these shells over 100,000 years ago, maybe 500,000 years ago, how can we know if they're abstract drawings? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Like, what is art? And what do we consider evidence of symbolic thinking? And that's one unanswered question, because even if we can prove that these markings were made by some sort of human ancestor hundreds of thousands of years ago, we're going to have a really hard time proving what the thought process was behind those markings. Was this just some mindless doodling? Or was this person trying to actually create some sort of symbolic pattern, some form of early art? And that may always remain an open question. Next up, we have a story on how we came to be so good at metabolizing alcohol. I should say most of us are good at breaking down ethanol, not all of us. Those of us with this amazing ability are distinguished by working versions of the enzyme ADH4. How long has this enzyme been around, Dave? Well, it was originally thought that it had only been around for a few thousand years, that maybe our ability to break down alcohol coincided with the beginnings of human civilization as we started fermenting fruit. We would have maybe wanted to enjoy that a little bit. <laughs> there would have been some sort of evolutionary advantage to, to having a very high-functioning version of this gene. But the new study suggests that this gene, which is also known as alcohol dehydrogenase, actually arose about 50 million years ago in primates. Wow. So basically, all primates can break down alcohol, but some tend to be a little better at it than others. What does this tell us about the evolution of 
ethanol consumption. Well, as the researchers traced the evolution of this gene over time, they found that it began to become a lot more active in some primate species about 10 million years ago. This is around the time that we were seeing a common ancestor of humans, chimpanzees, and gorillas. And this gene that this ancestor involved was about 40 times more efficient at breaking down alcohol than previous versions of the gene. So about 10 million years ago, some primates started to get better at metabolizing alcohol. And it may have to do with the transition to the terrestrial lifestyle? Well, that's the thinking. You know, this is around a time when Earth had begun to cool off, food sources are changing. And one of the big things that happened is, for the first time, primates were eating not only fruit picked from trees, but also fruits that fell on the ground. And what's significant about fallen fruits is that they're exposed to bacteria in the environment that convert sugar to alcohol, so they begin to accumulate ethanol. So if you've got these fruits on the ground for a while and you eat the fruit, you may get a little tipsy. And that can be a very big disadvantage because if you're getting tipsy and you're not really breaking down that alcohol well, you could be subject to predation. Maybe you're, you're dozing when you should be mating. So those primates that were much better able to break down this alcohol were at a big selective advantage. Lastly, we have a story on murderous sea mammals. This is like a true crime story. Something is killing porpoises off the coast of the Netherlands. Set the scene for us, Dave. The bodies are washing ashore, Sarah. <laughs> We've got dozens of mutilated harbor porpoises stranded on Dutch beaches every year. Their bloody remains are being discovered by screaming <laughs> vacationers. <laughs> and the question is, what is killing all these animals in such a grisly manner? And the researchers in this case took a very CSI Netherlands approach. <laughs> uh, what were some of the clues they came across that put them in the right direction. The first thing they looked at is the nature of the wounds. These are some pretty gruesome wounds. And first, the researchers thought, well, maybe it's boat propellers. These animals are getting struck by boat propellers. Then they started to look a little bit closer, and they noticed teeth marks on these purposes. And uh, propellers don't have teeth. <laughs> so the researchers started looking at gray seals. We think of seals as cute, cuddly animals. You can actually see a cute, cuddly picture on the site. But it turns out these are pretty uh, vicious predators, or at least they can be. And they're not very small, which I also usually think when I go to the zoo, the seals, you know, they're like four feet long, maybe. No, they can actually tower to a height of two and a half meters and the weight of two linebackers. They're actually the largest predators in the southern North Sea. But this was not the final answer for them, just seeing tooth marks. What finally sealed the deal that these are the real culprits? (laughs) Well, they wanted more evidence, and what they really wanted was DNA evidence. And as you can imagine, that's pretty hard to get DNA evidence. Some creatures are tracked in the wild. The water is going to wash away any DNA evidence. But the researchers did some digging, and what they found is at the bottom of some of the deep, narrow bite marks where these sealed pockets had been formed after uh, the seals did their biting. And inside, the biologists found lo and behold, gray seal DNA. Okay, so we know who they are, but we know their motive. (laughs) Well, that's a big question. Why is this only happening recently? Why didn't this happen before? And the researchers think it may have something to do with changes in fishing practices in the area. As gas prices have gone up in recent years, Dutch fishermen have switched from trolling the seas to using cheaper sea nets. And what happens is that these sea nets can actually trap harbor porpoises as bycatch. So the team speculates that the gray seal, which is known to steal fish from the nets, may have stumbled upon these porpoises and said, hey, that's a 
big, tasty fish, I should really start eating that and maybe change their behavior based on what they found there. And what does this mean for ongoing conservation efforts? Both of these animals, the seals and the porpoises, are protected. Well, it's a good point because the conservationists are trying to help rehabilitate these gray seals. And one person we spoke to for the story suggests that actually rehabilitating these gray seals and reintroducing them would be a lot like reintroducing a bunch of lions into the wild. You really got to worry about the animals they prey on. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, sir, we've got a story about how smoking is linked to the loss of Y chromosomes from cells. Also, a discovery of comet dust in Antarctic ice. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about Japan's new mission to get into the heart of an asteroid. Also, a story about dark sharing in scientific publishing. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Electric eels can deliver a shock powerful enough to stun a horse, but usually they're after much smaller fry. In a paper this week, Ken Catania explores what happens when tiny fish and invertebrates encounter these charges. Electric eels are amazing in that basically their discharge is sort of reaching into the nervous system of their prey and remotely controlling the muscles so they can involuntarily cause the prey to do what they want, which is to either stop them or make them move, depending on the circumstances. So how do they create a charge that they send out and seek out their prey with? Electric eels create a charge using modified muscles that are essentially biological batteries. And almost their entire back end, about four-fifths of their body, is composed entirely of these biological batteries. And that allows them to put them in series, like you would have batteries in a flashlight, and create 600 volts. Wow. So when you say that the muscles act as a battery, do you mean they have charge separation and then that's acting to like generate the energy? Muscles are able to create an electric charge on their own, normal muscles. So we're used to this from, if you think about a television show with a monitor of a heart in a hospital scene, we're all aware that you can record the electrical activity from a muscle and you see the little beep-beep. Well, essentially, that's using ion channels the same way that a nerve fiber uses ion channels to create a current. And what the eels have done is essentially given up all the contractile properties of the muscles and instead amped up the channels that create this charge and separated them onto one side of this modified muscle. And so when they fire, the same way your heart muscle might fire, they give off a much larger current than a typical muscle would give off. And then you put these in series, and the eel has about 4,000 of these that it stacks up in series for a large eel, and that gives off a very high voltage. Okay. Well, electric eels have been studied by many different types of researchers through the years. What have been some of the this special animal's contributions to science? Well, the eels have been sort of fascinating, I'm sure, even before historical times, I'm sure people were aware of them. And then when people started getting really interested in electricity, 1700s, 1800s, electric eels and electric rays were one of the few places that you could regularly sort of generate electricity or experience generated electricity other than maybe lightning and static, for instance. That led to the desire to understand whether eels and other electric fish were actually 
giving off the same sorts of energy that was basically called electricity. And then with the invention of primitive batteries and Leyden jar and so forth, the strongly electric fish became a huge focus to try to understand, is this kind of a one of the fundamental sort of energy forces of life itself? Was this something that was amped up in these strongly electric fish? So there was a lot of fascination with the fish from that side of things. But another side of it is that because eels have increased the number of channels that mediate current flow, they ended up being a very rich source of these molecules that people were trying to understand at the time. So basically, the acetylcholine receptor, which basically runs all our muscles, was found in great number in electric eels and electric rays. And so it turned out to be a perfect place to isolate those channels. And that was a very important landmark finding that was facilitated by these strongly electric fish. And it's surprising to me, after all this research, that no one looked in detail about how eels used this amazing electrical ability to hunt up until now. Why do you think that it's been overlooked for so long? Yeah, that kind of amazed me too. I think part of the reason is that it seemed like such a simple story if you just sit back and think, oh, you know, we know that electricity can be dangerous and eels generate a lot of electricity and maybe they just swim up and kill their prey and that's the end of the story. It's so much more interesting than that. And I think one of the reasons that it wasn't really appreciated is eels are incredibly fast. So without using high-speed video, you really can't see the details of what's happening. And when you took a close look at how electric pulses from eels affect their intended prey, what did you find when you looked into the details? When I first started looking at the predator-prey interaction, one of the really striking things was that as soon as the eel started its electric discharge, within about three milliseconds, incredibly fast, the prey was completely immobilized. All voluntary motion just stopped, and the fish was just stuck in whatever position it had been in when the electric charge started. And that was a a real mystery to me. How could that possibly happen? It almost looked like there was some sort of supernatural force that came out and stopped the activity of the fish. And of course, that's the electricity. But the mechanism was not obvious. Was this something that just killed the fish outright? And what seemed like a good candidate was massive muscle contraction, basically what a taser does. But when you actually looked at the physiology of what was going on, you found that it wasn't directly affecting the muscles? That's right. So the first thing that I looked at was to essentially put a fish to sleep, and then you can destroy the brain, and then you have a muscle preparation, and measure the tension in the fish when the electric organ discharge goes off. And this was done by essentially feeding an eel in a nearby chamber that was separated with an electrically permeable barrier. And when you do that, the eel shocks the food that you're feeding it, these earthworms I was feeding it, and at the moment that the eel gives off its discharge, there's massive muscle tension in the fish preparation. Basically, it is causing massive involuntary contraction of the fish muscles when it gives off its discharge. Is it acting at the muscle or is it acting at the nerve before the muscle? That's a great question. That was sort of the next question in the study. And it turns out that a great way to test that is to use curare to inactivate the neuromuscular junction. So what that does is it blocks the acetylcholine receptors and 
prevents the nerve from activating the muscle. Curare is a, is a famous poison, right? Curare is a paralytic that is most famous for being used in poison arrows from these poison arrow dart frogs that have various neurotoxins on their skin. And it blocks the neuromuscular junction and basically paralyzes prey. And the usefulness of curare for this question was muscles also create what we would call action potentials that result in contraction. And with sufficient electrical stimulation, you will generate a contraction directly in the muscle. The alternative is that you're activating the nervous system, these motor neurons that lead to the muscles when the eel gives off its discharge. And so to distinguish between those two things, the fish preparation was injected with curare. And sure enough, that eliminated the eel's effect on the fish. And what that means is that the muscles are not being directly activated, but rather the motor neurons or the nervous system output to the muscles is being activated by the eel. That's how we use our muscles, our voluntary muscles, usually, right? We Exactly. But you also noticed a few different pulse patterns that the eels give off that seem to serve different purposes. So once it was obvious that the eels were activating the neurons that go to the muscles, then looking at the eel's pulse pattern took on a whole new significance. When you look at the way the eels are giving off their discharge, they started out with two pulses that are more closely spaced than the rest of the pulses. And there's a large set of research on muscle activity that shows that that pattern, essentially what you'd call a doublet, at the beginning of a motor neuron activity pattern, is very efficient at rapidly inducing maximal contraction in muscles. So this suggests, at least raises the possibility, that eels have actually been selected to produce a very efficient, fast mechanism for remotely causing massive muscle contraction. And this isn't the only pattern of electricity that the eels give off. There are a couple others that they use in hunting. Can you walk us through those? The story gets even more interesting from there. So it's been known for some time that when an eel is hunting, it'll give off doublets, little pairs of these high-voltage pulses as it explores various objects. It pauses, gives off a doublet as it's searching for things. And eels searching for things are generally looking for food, looking for something to eat. It turns out that that closely spaced doublet that they're giving off as they probe different areas causes a massive involuntary twitch in prey. So now if you transport yourself to the natural environment of an eel, they're nocturnal, they live in the Amazon, a lot of their prey is going to be hidden in various places, in plants, under rocks, and so forth. When an eel gives off those pulses, a prey item that's nearby hiding has no choice but to maximally contract every muscle in its body. And that is the perfect cue for the eel to detect where it is. So another side of this story is that eels are incredibly sensitive to little water movements. So they're really using sensitivity to movement combined with this electrical deactivation ability to overcome their prey. If the prey item is swimming nearby and they detect it outright, they will immobilize it immediately with the full train of one of these high-voltage series of pulses. But if they're hunting, they essentially give off these doublets, and if something is hidden, it will twitch, and that will give away the prey's position, and that is followed up immediately 
with the high voltage volley that inactivates the prey and allows the eel to catch and eat the prey item. So they have two different ways of discovering and attacking prey. That's amazing. Exactly. They can either completely immobilize the prey or cause the prey to move. And they'll do one or the other depending on their needs. Um, Have you ever been shocked in your experiments or in the wild? I, I have, yeah. When you have a small eel, for me, it's kind of irresistible to just sort of play around in the water a little bit and see how intense it is. And this is something people did in the 17, 1800s all the time. Nobody's ever been seriously injured in those experiments. But the other thing is if you're wearing rubber shoes and you only have a little bit of your body or your hand in the water, there's almost nothing to feel. But if you were to get in the tank with the eel, actually, this mechanism is identical to the way that a taser works. And historical reports show that people have been completely inactivated in the same way that the fish in these experiments are. So a number of famous early researchers of electric fish sort of dropped the eel on their legs while they were trying to do experiments, and they were just stuck in place for 30 seconds Wow! until the eel stopped. And then there's a lot of anecdotes about locals who were fishermen there. If they stepped out of a boat and there was an eel nearby, they would just be frozen in place until the eel stopped discharging and wouldn't be able to get in or out of the boat. Maybe you get this question a lot, but why isn't the eel affected by its own massive discharges? That is a great question, and I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. Really? Yeah, we could speculate. I mean, we would guess electricity flows down the path of least resistance. So you might presume that there are conductive pathways within the eel's body that will shunt the electric current away from the brain and peripheral nerves and so forth. But nobody really knows at this point. I think it's a fascinating question. It sounds like there's still a lot more to learn about these guys. I do think there is. There's a huge amount to learn. I've looked at a lot of different animal behaviors and sensory systems, and this is one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen. Ken, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Sarah. I enjoyed it. Ken Catania writes about the mechanics behind the electric eel's shock this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, 
is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.